You're tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. Happy 2024, friends. This is Samantha Hayes, Missouri NEA, Director of Professional Practice. I did have a title change. Nothing about my role has changed, just a title change. So if you hear me say anything about Director of Professional Practice, my department is now Professional Practice. I am bringing you a conversation that I had with Otto Fajan, our Legislative Director, about the week after Carla Esslinger was named the new commissioner of DESE. And a lot of it has to do with common ground and how common ground is reached in the Missouri legislature. And then also really his experience navigating that world. He is a wealth of information. He goes into the then and now of common ground in the Missouri legislature, and then also looking forward ahead at public policy in terms of education, obviously, and what the dynamic might be with Dr. Esslinger being named the next commissioner, yet her still being in the Senate this coming session. I really hope you enjoy our conversation, and I look forward to another year of podcasting with you. Okay. And I think this is actually using the mic because the last two times it did not connect to it. So I think I should come in clearly, as clearly as you do with your pretty cool retro mic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right. So Dr. Esslinger, Carla Esslinger, was named Desi's next commissioner at the State Board of Education last Tuesday. And so, of course, in my world, that changes quite a few things, to put it minimally. Oh, yeah. Um, changes a lot in your world, and that's for other reasons. Um, and we can get into that probably ne- starting in the, during the session. Start talking about that. Yeah, it does to the makeup of the Senate. But she said something during the state board meeting whenever she was announced, and she came out and had her speech. Um, that really got me down a train of thought surrounding common ground. And how that happens, in my mind, I started thinking about how that happens at a department, how that happens at a state legislature, how that happens pretty much, obviously, at any level of government, but specifically in Missouri. Um, So I'm going to read you what she said and then kind of explain how that led me to something else that I, I read often and think about often. And then I want to get your thoughts on that. Okay. Okay. So this is Dr. Carla Esslinger named Desi's next commissioner. This is at the state board meeting on Tuesday, December 5th. So basically it came down to, I can lead. Through leadership, I can shepherd opportunities for true collaboration among all the education space, all within the education space. Set high standards for excellence, celebrate success, and we all, all of us, board members, branches of governance, our education communities, our educators, reformers, traditionalists, I could go on and on and on, right? Our homeschoolers, our private schoolers, our executive branch business leaders, we all want the same thing. We all want the same thing. 
We want our children to be successful. We want our communities to be successful. We want our state to be successful. I believe intentionally working directly with and respecting each of these various groups, we can literally pull together all of our collective resources. By pulling together, we can achieve education programs that will meet the needs of all children. And we've always say it this way, all means all. If we find that aspect, that common ground to move all interests and hold to high standards, the kids, the kids win. Today, and frankly, for many, many years, our education community has been in a bit of disruption, a little unsettled, I think is fair. And I've worked in this environment in various roles, and I generally found success. I do not define myself as a reformer, a traditional public school defender, or any other term that comes with a preconceived perception of who I am as a leader. I am a school leader. I support work towards good schools. Period. Good schools. Um, so this got me really thinking about common ground and how that has been something that, as I understand it, anecdotally, because I do not live at the Capitol such as yourself. Um, I've only been in this role for a year and a half observing all of this unfold. Um, from my understanding, it's happened more easily in the past in a lot of spaces and it does in the current day um especially when speaking in terms of education policy because that's what i follow closely yeah uh and the train of thought that got me thinking to the book that i reference often that you and i talk about pretty frequently is in search of common ground conversations about the toughest questions in k-12 through education so this is an excerpt from that book that like has me from dr esslinger's quote or what she said in her speech to this um, this is an excerpt from In Search of Common Ground. Quote, part of what's going on is something that is that social scientists called group polarization. As Cass Sunstein observed back in 1999, deliberation among a group of like-minded individuals tend to make the whole group's feel, views more extreme. In other words, talking with those who think like we do doesn't open our minds. It intensifies and calcifies our views. Groups can become Dr. Nair, that simply have simply having doubts or asking questions is seen as blasphemous. That why that's why conversing with allies provides little insight into thinking of those who disagree with us. Meanwhile, the loudest and most extreme voices tend to get the most attention. Uh, funders stand ready to support those who energetically push their agenda. Advocates celebrate and feed those who most stridently make their case. And, of course, there are media outlets looking to generate controversy in pursuit of clicks that has all thrown gas onto a raging fire of polarization. So that's, mm. with that intro. That's depressing. Yeah. Because there's a lot of merit to those points. Yes. And so, and there's also a lot of merit to Dr. Esslinger's points. And yeah. so, and that's the optimism I want to run with. There's also the caution of what I just read. Sure. Uh, so with that, and now you're understanding a little bit of my thinking. Yeah. And probably overthinking of connecting too many dots. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to check and check, check with you and chat with you about your experience because you live in that world of common ground to advocate for priorities. Yeah. Um, and so with you working at the Capitol, being there, working with legislators, help me essentially, and others, 
get out of that anecdotal land and world that we live in often and give some historical perspective on this if you can. Um, like what you have experienced in terms of common ground, working with one another to create policy, because obviously we've created policy. <laughs> it's half, there has been common ground that has been reached to some extent. So yeah. I just want to hear it from you as opposed to like making up stories in my head, which I yeah. can do um, quite extravagantly, but I also don't want to do that without valid evidence and so that's you are my valid evidence how has the dynamic at the capitol evolved over the years specifically in terms of relationships between opposing entities um and how you have navigated that so uh so i started working i wasn't working in education i started working for the senate in 1990 okay so that's a couple years before the state passed term limits mm -hmm. and the there had, there was a very much increasing trend that had already started, but it was underway to shift more. Um, there was there was a, a a shift in terms of federal control uh, of education, which was kind of starting with, you know, the the whole conversation about a nation at risk, and there was more inter, you know, like more attention being paid and you started to have states doing this standardized testing stuff in 93. Mm -hmm. But if you think back to the general situation and the approach back then in, in the legislature, I, and I'm kind of more familiar with the Senate because I worked for the Senate. So back then it was a democratically controlled state Senate. You still had significant portions of rural Missouri represented by a Senate Democrats, mm -hmm. which we really don't have anymore. And right. the state was still on operating under multiple federal court orders pertaining to school desegregation. There was still mm -hmm. a case in Kansas City and still a case in St. Louis City. And the state and the districts were both paying uh, for programs uh, pursuant to that. So that was a big issue. It's kind of hard now, I think, maybe to have a perspective, but it was a, it was a big political deal. It was a big financial deal. Um, but in general, the, the, the general approach at that point, the state share of funding was significantly less even than it, well, it's, I guess it, it got to be more. I mean, it's actually back about where it used to be. Mm -hmm. which is about 30%, which isn't really enough to do a very good job of kind of like raising the floating the boats. Um, but there was generally an approach towards more local funding and local control. And we've kind of lost the local control in the last 30 years, but we have returned back to primarily local funding. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what I would see was there was a tendency for people to not be as aligned by party hmm. on education issues. And I started to do the staffing on education in 93. What I saw was people were aligned based upon their regionality. And so hmm. like when we did, we did a bill that was first and foremost, it was a formula bill because we had 
uh, a court order saying that the formula was unconstitutional as funded in 93. Mm-hmm. And the senators, it wasn't like there was a Republican and a Democrat duking it out. There was a negotiation. There was basically a decision, you know, we're going to fix this. The judge basically said in January 15th, you got to fix it. And I give you basically until the end of session to fix it. And so they rolled up their sleeves and got to work. And you had a, there was like a joint committee um, to study the issue that had people in both parties. Um, I think it might've even been House and Senate. It's like a special committee put together to kind of um, pull ideas together. Some ideas were already converging, but on the Senate side, you had two people who had been around a good long time um, in the Senate and in the legislature and who knew a fair amount about school finance. And they were basically kind of like the voices for all of the senators from their kind of part of the state. So Wayne Good was a Democrat from like um, the sort of inner ring part of St. Louis County. Right. And like U City was, I think, a little bit of his district. He had UMSL. He actually was instrumental in UMSL becoming a part of the UM system. Mm. So he was kind of like the person who looked out for the financial interests of urban and suburban school districts and their legislators. And then Harold Caskey from Cass County, Mm -hmm. uh, actually Bates County, uh, he was kind of the... the, uh, person who would look out for the interests of school systems and legislators from the more rural parts of the state, regardless of party. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, when they did the formula in 93, we had like a conference committee. There were some differences between the House and the Senate and the sorts of details. But basically, you know, we had a conference in the last week of session on Tuesday night. Six hours later, we're all done with the conference. And once they kind of knew that Wayne and Harold were okay with the language as, you know, a reasonable compromise. Everybody else was like, okay, let's just do it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, there, there was, you know, in terms of common ground, it was kind of like, we got a job to do, you know, we need to legislatively fix this. We don't want, you know, we had a bad example, which is courts, federal courts running school systems for decades. Mm. Don't like it. (laughs) No, It's like the worst possible thing. Yeah, it sounds awful. It's, you know, where, or it's, it's basically, you know, 20, 20 parties to a lawsuit run a district okay. with different, yeah, you know, that's just no way to make things good for kids. And there, so mm-hmm. there was an earnest desire kind of across the board there. Now, to be clear, there was some resentment in the more rural parts of the state because of so much money, uh, albeit probably, a, you know, most of it had actually come through income taxes from more higher income parts of the state. But it had come in total from all over the state and gone pursuant to the order to primarily programs in St. Louis schools and Kansas City schools. So by the time they got in 98 to dealing with that issue, which was an important even, it's kind of like on the radar in 93, um, there was a little bit of a resentment, but there was still kind of a desire uh, to resolve that. You know, we had in, as that the nineties rolled on the Kansas city school board kind of got motivated to try to strike a deal. And they were able to negotiate something first to get a settlement, to get the judge to kind of bless an agreement with between them and the plaintiffs, et cetera. 
Um, and it was a little bit nervy for them because they had negotiated, but there kind of wasn't very much, like it looked like they were going to lose a significant chunk of their budget, like go from a $400 million budget to a $300 million budget. There really wasn't like a parachute there to kind of, you know, have that happen in a smooth way. Right. So there was some motive on the part of the legislature to kind of like come in and say, how can we make this process work better? And they still also had a motive. They, they wanted to settle the St. Louis case. So I can remember the Senate Education Committee working on a bill addressing the desegregation stuff. And they did a lot of work in 97. We didn't quite get the bill passed in 97, brought it back in similar form in 98. And I can remember, you know, you'd have like John T. Russell from Lebanon, Missouri, mm-hmm. who was a Republican. He was elected in office. So this is 98. He was elected in 62. Hmm. Right. Okay. He'd been in office oh for my a God. while. Yeah. <laughs> Wayne, Wayne Good had been elected about the same time, too. They'd okay. both been in office since about the time I was born. Yeah. And so he was in there. Lacey Clay from St. Louis City was in the committee. Jay Nixon, mm-hmm. as a state senator before he became AG and governor, was right. on the committee. And so you had people from, you know, rural Republican parts of the state, urban St. Louis City, Democratic, all on the committee together, all trying to kind of get this job to, you know, get to a point where we could pass a bill that gets this, the federal courts out of our schools. And so, you know, when you have a, a big job to do like that, sometimes it makes it easier. And certainly back then when you didn't have as much of an influence, a centralizing influence of the party, right. the senators themselves, they had more to say about how they made their decisions and how they got reelected. Yeah. There, there wasn't as much of a big of a role of money versus people back then. Okay. So, you know, elections were still more of a thing you did than a thing you paid for. Okay. And there was also just not as much infrastructure of the party, either the importance of campaign consultants or like leadership staff within the within the caucuses of the legislature. So there was more, it was just more decentralized. And I think mm-hmm. to a degree, that kind of thing probably makes a difference in terms of seeking common ground, because if there's some yeah. big motivating thing, just there, the more those individuals can say, hey, we got to fix this. And there aren't bigger institutional barriers that say, well, we have to be over on this side and they have to be over on that side. Right. Um, it's also back prior to the time that you really, you know, one of the things we've seen in the last 30 years is that the people who have studied how people reason have really gotten their game on because now mm-hmm. there's a lot better understanding of how language and issue frames affects how people think. Yeah. How they think about issues because they'll have like it, it can affect so like, you know, whatever the question is, there's probably a, several different thought tools for issue frames you might pick up. And the words that people use on certain populations can affect which one they pick up to the point where we've now gotten to the point where there's a set of people who pretty much all pick up one tool. And there's another set of people who pick up the other tool and they vote in different primaries and they elect people who think mm-hmm. differently, right? Right. 
right. 30, 40 years ago, that in, that whole infrastructure of issue framing was just kind of in its infancy. And it mm-hmm. really wasn't affecting things. So if you go up and look at like the distribution of kind of like political action and votes and leanings of people in Congress, you can go look at you know, like a CQ, a Congressional Quarterly and National Journal would like publish things and they could show you that, you know, 40 years ago, you had relatively liberal voting people um, in the Republican co- cohort of the legislature in at Congress, and you had more conservative voting people in the Democratic mm-hmm. uh, part of the Congress. And we don't really have very much of that anymore. Okay. You know, it's really become more like monolithic on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. And you think that's because of that? The well, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's because of many things. I mean, I think that, you know, social media in recent, in the last decade has reinforced it, but redistricting mm-hmm. has okay. changed things too. There's been a tendency to militarize redistricting to where we minimize the number of swing districts. Right. And there's an, you know, if you're in office, there's an, you know, there's an incentive to create as many safe seats as possible. Yeah. Because then it's, you know, if you're in office, it's easy to stay. When I did, so I did redistricting for the Senate in 2001. It was one of the last things I did legislatively before I came to Missouri NEA. And, you know, it depends upon the circumstance. It can be a god awful mess if you are gaining or losing a seat, because then you have to like, you have to change every, you know, the, it's like an earthquake. Everybody, the ground under every official's feet is moving. Mm-hmm. But if you're static and in the, the 2000 census, we stayed static. Yeah. So then the, it's a lot easier. And in fact, in this case, the, the incumbents other than Todd Aiken got together and agreed on a map and just came to the state legislature and said, we'd like it for you guys to do this. And the legislative legislators were like, okay. So they basically just did a map that was agreed to by the incumbent huh. members of Congress. Oh. And that's probably pretty common. Uh, but, you know, you, we've seen that redistricting has become a, a process that kind of maximizes safe seats. And when you maximize safe seats, the, you know, the dark side of that is that you have people who don't really have to worry about what people who think different think. Right. 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 Um, so, but you wanted to be optimistic. So when I talked to my friend, Steve Aylman, who I used to work for long, you know, 30 years ago when he was a state Senator, Republican state Senator from St. Charles County, and he despairs at the idiocy of the legislature, uh, in the current day across the, across the spectrum. I like to tell him that, you know, you see, you know, the, the, Reporters are trained to look for a boxing match. So if a boxing match doesn't happen, they don't even know what to say about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're going to, you know, in the media, you're going to see a lot of that stuff. But mm-hmm. at ground level, there's still a whole ton of work going on. Right. Right. Like if right. you think about the on the House side, you've got right now, Brad Pollitt chairs the Education Committee. Yeah. And he's... He, He's kind of a little like Carla in that he's a lifetime person in public education, but he's not, he, he's realistic to know the time he's in the party he's a part of that, you know, he has to think about whether changes are appropriate. Um, 
And Paula Brown, our longtime member and leader, who is the ranking Democrat, ranking member, also, mm-hmm. you know, committed to public education, but also willing to think, you know, what's just because we used to do something that way doesn't necessarily mean it has to always be done that way. So, you know, another person. And so, you know, there's some work going on there where bills come into the committee and, you know, those two and maybe a couple other people and or the sponsor, you know, start talking. So there's, you know, like some work behind the scenes that goes on there that tries to seek a common ground on something. You know, somebody has an idea, it's got problems, but could be fixed to something that, you know, maybe some people would think is worth moving forward. Mm. Uh, and, and on the on the Senate side, you know, we had a 2022, we were involved directly in drafting a whole bunch of stuff that became law. Right. Um, and so, you know, from our perspective, we typically, you know, we'll start from our resolutions and then we'll just try to figure out, and those tend to be pretty student-centered. So yeah. we give ourselves a pretty good fighting chance of being able to be in a position to seek common ground on stuff. If, if somebody's willing to think about and work towards something that's good for students, it's probably not going to be completely at odds with where we're at on a resolution. For sure. You, know, you think about the reading bill, Senate Bill 681, mm-hmm. the language on full-time virtual, mm-hmm. uh, recovery high school. Yeah. You know, there's a number of things that happened that session. We didn't have very much happen last session. We've talked about this. Everything got held hostage. Held hostage. <laughs> Still think about that as well. So, you know, uh, like, like, so I, you know, I, I, I'm, I hope I'm getting, giving you at least a little glimmer of optimism there that, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't high profile mm-hmm. necessarily. It certainly isn't like explosive. It's more kind of like it takes a while and there's a lot of work involved. And, but sometimes it, it, you know, it, it bears fruit, you know, and, and becomes new policy that's beneficial. Right. Right, right, right. So that was incredible that you were able to go from doom and gloom to the give me the optimism. I appreciate that. So what is your, um, in your experience, what are some of the major challenges you find in living in that finding common ground space between like, especially with a highly contentious education issue? Do you run up a lot against a lot of challenges in terms of someone oh, yeah. like, oh, absolutely not because of that redistricting and that maximum maximum safe seats? Like, has that made your job harder in terms of or more challenging in terms of finding that common ground for especially contentious issues? Well, it is. So, you know, political moderates in both parties are, you know, in peril these days. Um. Mm-hmm. Because of the, you know, the way the primary process works, you know, the issue framers have figured out how to drive a big chunk of the folks who would vote in a, in a primary towards a more extreme candidate. So that's a challenge in terms of who shows up in the legislature. Mm-hmm. And then organizations, you know, it's a difficult thing for an organization. You know, like if you think about Missouri NEA, you know, we have our resolutions, but we don't necessarily have a legislature Sometimes we have one that is like, we'll, we'll do a policy that just takes the language out of your resolution. Yeah. Right. That happens. Yeah, yeah. That's happened several mm-hmm. times in the last couple of years. On the other hand, sometimes it's kind of like that resolution can influence 
the the policy, but there are parts of it that are still at odds. Yeah. Then it then there's a real tension for any organization, including us. Is that good enough yeah. for us to be you know okay? Do we have to try to try to block something? And so probably as big of a hurdle as who's in office is the challenges of organizations to kind of be in just as it's dangerous for a moderate on either side of the political spectrum as an elected to be seen working with people who aren't of the same party. Mm -hmm. There can be a danger for an organization like, like internally or with its you know other organizations that it often works with, you know, what sometimes looks like might be described as leadership is framed as you're trying to help the enemy. Hmm. Right. So there are organizational factors there that make it challenging too. Looking ahead, you gave us a little bit of a history in terms of from the nineties to early two thousands to now. Yeah. Looking ahead, what do you see as future challenges and or opportunities for educate for specifically MNEA um, or really anyone in this space of education to work with state legislature legislators like are we like is there a specific topic that would probably be one that's most likely to have that common ground moving forward well I think I think that there is there are a couple mm-hmm. that are so, some of them I think are pretty polarizing. For example, um, people re- tend to react pretty strongly one way or the other to um, private school vouchers paid by state funds. Right. But there's less so. Like it, there's a kind of a counter revolution on. Uh, the overuse of standardized testing and so on that we've been a, kind of a part of with Paula Brown and Jill Carter and others. Right. I think there's a substantial amount of common ground in the legislature on that. And that's kind of, you know, it is in part, that's kind of like a, a state, state versus federal issue. And those things sometimes tend to lend themselves to common ground at, at the state legislative level. You know, I don't know how this is, you know, how this would go, but you know, the there, like I said, there's a degree of a desire on the part of the legislature to kind of push back against the federal intrusion on standardized testing. Um, there's also, you know, as a part of that, there's also a desire to have a, the if we're going to have an accreditation process, it should really be something that kind of s- directly through its own operation supports improvement of schools as opposed to just being a grading system punitive yeah yeah and so there's some potential that that can be for example there's a rift between district schools that are accredited charter schools that are not accredited they just have a contract with their sponsor so you know what if there's a system of accreditation that is a real improvement system would that be something that would make sense to apply to district schools and charter schools? Charter schools might think, oh, I don't like that. But because, you know, you, they might have to do that. They might have to improve. They might have to change or whatever. Right. On the other hand, they would then essentially be on a similar accountability footing as the district operated schools. Yeah. 
So, you know, these, there's, you know, there, there's a, there's space there where, you know, the, the legislators can look at this sort of stuff and think, is there, you know, whether you guys want it or not, do we feel like there's common ground for the kids in the state? Right. Well, you talked about multiple areas where there is potential for that. Yeah. For that motivation, that does desire to move as a collective. Yeah. Um, do you anticipate that actually like happening? Any of it actually happening? It's really hard to tell. I know. Most people, I think, would guess that 2024, for example, mm-hmm. you've got, you know, largely the same cast coming back yeah. to the state house. Mm-hmm. It's an election year. I, I forget the number, but many people in the state Senate are running for a statewide office. Right. And so you would think that's going to be like whatever we had last year in terms of hostage taking, et cetera, dialed up to 11 or 12. Fabulous. You would think that. Um, but, you know, some of these, you know, we, we passed some stuff in 2022. We didn't really pass much other than some neat little retirement bits in 2023. Right. So, you know, sometimes the legislature feels like, oh, we need to pass something, right? It's about time for them to pass something else. So hmm. there, that, you know, the fact that some, a bunch of stuff moved away is along the process. For example, the open enrollment bill moved through the house, passed just barely, uh-huh. um, but it did pass, went to the Senate. It was never really debated on its own, but it was like lobbed into another bill that passed the house. Uh, that we had worked on on the full-time virtual cleanup stuff. So those things, you know, moved through one chamber, made it over to the Senate, which is kind of typical, you know, the House is more easily kind of driven to votes and moving things if there's the votes for it. Yeah. So I'll be waiting with bated breath each month for updates. Oh, yeah. Super curious. Um, And then... um, also waiting with bated breath for twenty or June first to see Dr. Esslinger and her new role. Yeah, and I just want to say I I I can't tell you now what effect that'll have, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure the fact that she has already been named to be the next commissioner of the department, yeah, will have an effect on some of the thought process in the Senate about education. Well, that I would absolutely think that would happen. For example, the floor leader, majority mm-hmm. floor leader, Cindy Laughlin, yeah, has a lot of regard for Carla. Mm-hmm. Frankly, has kind of been, you know, eager to, to have her be the person running that agency. Yeah. If that's the case and you're, you know, you've got this this session and then she'll have two more almost for sure in some leadership role, whether it's floor leader or pro tem. Yeah. You know, she'll have to think what in my ability to kind of shape what the Senate might or might not bring to the floor in education, how much new law does she, do I want to, to hand to her? Right. When she's a brand new commissioner, you know, that, I mean. Right. That's something that could easily be a part of the thought process. We'll just kind of have to see how that goes. Yeah, watch it play out. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, she is she's an interesting person in the Senate in that she doesn't file and move the majority, even though she has immense background in education, she kind of keeps a low profile in terms of the number of bills she actually files and sponsors. Mm -hmm. But on all the bills that are in education that are meaningful, a whole lot of people come to her and talk about it because they know she has a lot of experience. She can help anticipate stuff. And as you read from her quote, she's not really, you know, arbitrarily on one side or the another, she's going to look at, you know, what does the data show? You know, what, what's the real impact? Is this good for schools and kids? Is this good for teachers? Yeah. And, you know, if the answer is more yes than no, then she's going to be thinking about it. So people come to her. So there's the role she plays there. It'll be mm. interesting to see how that translates when she, you know, it's, it's a whole other thing to learn, you know, how to be the administrative head of a big state agency. Yeah. It's kind of like becoming a building principal or a superintendent, I suppose. I would say, I would you know, the superintendent. Yeah. <laughs> That's, um, to me, that sounds terrifying, but I am glad someone is there. Yeah. With that much experience and that perspective to ready to take that role. I'm very excited to see what happens. One thing that, that I think everyone who looks at policy probably eventually starts to realize is when you have somebody, who is has the background and is making well-reasoned decisions, who is the person who is like, you know, either statutorily or constitutionally designated to make those decisions, it makes it a whole lot easier for public policy to move forward. Mm. Because it's, you know, there's the processes by which, you know, if you, you know, like Governor Greitens was going to try to put somebody else in as commissioner who probably wouldn't have been very pro-public education. Right. So now you've got a commissioner who isn't necessarily, you know, run, you know, the the chief administrative officer for all our public schools, but not really necessarily a supporter. So now every time they're doing things that are, you know, kind of antagonistic, you have to figure out how do we stop, you know, X, Y, or Z that this person has done. Mm-hmm. When you have somebody who has a deep background in Missouri public schools, yeah. You know, there's a there's a decent chance that they'll be making decisions as that leader that don't have to be pulled up or blocked. That's the hope. Yeah, that's the hope. hope. (laughs) So much hope. All right. Well, that's going to be my hashtag for this is hope Um, after hearing what she said and then thinking about all of my spirals, but then also uh, the importance of common ground going forward. 